This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over how you get orthopedic surgery topics, and you are now tuned into yet another episode. We are finally getting back to kind of our, our regular schedule for those that are residents that have been listening to our OITE slash our board review series. We hope that you all did well on the OITE exams that were just recent. And for those that are going to be studying up for boards the upcoming year, we hope that you all will continue to study and we will have some more type of those episodes coming up in the future. But today we're getting back to kind of our bread and butter episodes, uh, you know, episodes where we have guests that come on and talk about different topics and we try to break it down all the way from the jump. So even anywhere from a medical student to a fellow to an attending can also understand this information. And today we're going to touch about a high yield topic, very high yield in a spine topic. We haven't had too many spine episodes, so we are glad to add another one of these spine episodes to the collection. And today we're going to talk a little bit about lumbar disc herniation. And we have Dr. Heidi Hollinger, who's going to give us you know, an excellent overview. She did a great job. We actually broke this down to a two-part episode. So this is the first part, and then we have the second part. And there's this awesome video and slides that go along with this. For those of you that have not subscribed to our YouTube channel, if you would like to go check that out. So those just kind of accompany our audio podcast. We try to explain everything uh, to the best of our abilities. So we we'll really go in-depth on <laughs> all of our disc herniations. We talk about the etiology. We talk about the anatomy how these patients present, how to examine them. And then we also talk about the imaging and how to look at the imaging and what <laughs> what are you necessarily you're looking at. I remember when I first started, it was very confusing. So we definitely broke that down uh, for that part. It's definitely useful to check out the YouTube video, but you can also listen as well. And again, we have Dr. Hollinger, who's going to give us uh, a great talk about this, a little bit more about Dr. Hollinger. She actually graduated from medical school at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, where she was actually elected to be AOA, Alpha Omega Alpha, which is great. This is a great honor society. Um, she did her residency in what is now Rutgers up in New Jersey. She completed her fellowship in spine surgery at the University of Texas Houston Medical Center. Um, she treats a lot of spinal disorders. She holds several leadership roles. She serves as an orthopedic delegate to the AMA, or the American Medical Association House of Delegates. Uh, she's been named talk doctor in New Jersey. Um, she is just overall great. She has a, <laughs> a great episode. Again, this was a great one. Uh, I know I said great probably like six times in the past 30 seconds, but uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Dr. Hollinger, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Happy to have you on. Thank you. Very happy to be on here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. And I think I can count on one hand how many spine episodes we've had. So I'm glad that we are adding to the uh, to the to the mix and we can finally talk a little bit more spine. So Great. again, so happy to have you. Thank you very much. 
And we typically start off, you know, our podcast with a couple of questions is getting to know you a little bit better. And this is kind of the age old question. You know, we have a lot of residents that listen to this podcast. So that maybe kind of decide what type of field they want to go into. And so what brought you towards spine? I know you do a wide yes. array of things from just, you know, our emails, but what kind of, what brought you towards the field of spine? Yes. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because I actually knew that I wanted to do orthopedics um, really early on. Really, I went to medical school to go into orthopedics. Um, but I always thought that hand and spine were kind of a totally different category. And I thought that there was no way that I was going to go into one of those because I wanted to do like shoulders and knees. And, you know, I was an athlete. And so I always thought that was the way it was going to head. Um, but I really don't like arthroscopy. And I realized that <laughs> once I started doing the cases and right. I'm glad that there are people who love it, but it's not for me. And I realized I, I actually did a, a schoolie case, um, when I was in my, um, when I was in one of my AI rotations and I'd really liked it. I thought it was really fascinating. It was literally a 13 hour neuromuscular scoli, which you'd think would be such a drag. Um, but the surgeons were great. They got me involved. They explained everything. And that sort of stuck in my head as I started figuring out what I would want to do as I went through residency. And I, I liked everything, you know, obviously everything is fun, but um, started thinking, that I really did like that case and started seeing more spine and realizing that I really liked the combination of being able to kind of do the traditional ortho things of putting in screws, putting in rods, you know, feeling like I was, you know, um, doing things that took more power, but then also doing some of the finer things, working around the nerves. And sometimes you do both in the same case. Sometimes you just do a case where you're just working um, kind of in, uh, you know, finer movements. And sometimes you're just doing, you know, kind of bigger reconstructive cases. And so I really like that variety. Um, I also find that it's very pattern-based and, and I really like that um, in terms of there's kind of the similar pattern between cervical, thoracic, lumbar, each of the vertebral bodies, kind of each level. And it just made sense to me. So. No, that, that, that's awesome. I'm glad you, you ended up there. I was in a similar situation uh, as a resident in a uh, scoliosis case. And I thought it was very interesting. And I am glad that, uh, that we have people that love doing spine. <laughs> <laughs> and it caused you to realize that it was not where you were going to be <laughs> headed for the rest of your career. Not, not, not I, but you know, it is, I, I still find you know, a lot of those cases super interesting as well. So I do like spine, uh, yeah. really interesting field. Yes. And looking back at it now, you know, you've been in practice for a little while now yes. and any advice that you would give yourself, let's say, you know, starting off uh, in, in fellowship, say starting off in fellowship, any advice that you would give yourself? Um, yes. And I, I think the biggest thing about fellowship for, for many of us, and I think increasingly so, um, because I think a lot of our residencies, um, there's been a lot less of you kind of figuring things out hands-on during residency, which I, I think is a good thing in many ways. Um, but I think fellowship has become all the more important for really, really um, getting your feet wet, feeling comfortable with doing a lot of cases. I think it's become even more important than it used to be um, to really seek out all the opportunities you can to get as many cases under your belt and as many clinic experiences, things like that. I think a lot of times people think that fellowship is just about operating, but you have to see patients in the office and the clinic to learn how to operate. Um, and the last thing, and 
luckily it was actually one of my mentors in fellowship that taught me how important this was, was even just learning some of the other points about how to run a practice, because it's not even just learning the academic side of things. It's how do you build a practice? How do you put together your forms that you give to um, patients that come in as a history and physical form? And whose history and physical forms did you like when you were working in um, different, different uh, of your attendings office hours and figuring all those things out, figuring out how you want your trays, because sometimes it's those little details. And that is some of the hardest part about starting your own practice is figuring out how you like to do things. Ah, yeah, those are all um, super important, especially I like that what you were saying about having to see patients in the clinic. I know we all get, you know, hung up on, you know, operating, operating, operating. And then when we're out on, or at least I can imagine when you're out on your own and all you've done is operate, you try to see patients in clinic is trying to, it may be a little bit more difficult to say, okay, well, which ones do we need to operate on again? Or kind of managing these patients. Yes, definitely. And the last question I have for you is, you know, we all love orthopedics, great field, but do you have any interests outside of the field of orthopedic surgery? Um, yes. So I am actually a very avid runner. Uh, so I ran in college and I actually, um, to the degree that I was able to, um, when time permitted, I um, did compete um, even while I was in residency and then um, have remained in competitive running um, while I've been uh, running my practice. So um, that's kind of my main hobby that has somewhat transitioned over the last four to five years as well to include, uh, oftentimes stroller running with my daughter. Nice. Uh, so kind of dual, dual hobbies of hanging out with family <laughs> and also running. Um, so that, uh, I love reading. I love hiking. So lots of yeah, that, things, but that, that's awesome. I, I tried running. I did, I did in track. I did, um, I did short you know, short distance, like 400. And I, I remembered I tried uh, an 800 or, and started to try a mile. And I was like, there's no possible way I can sustain this speed for this yes. long. There's just no way. So uh, I tip my hats off to anybody that can run more than 800 meters. I, uh, I, I really respect you. <laughs> we only do it because we don't have the fast twitch fibers. To go <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun, but, um, you know, I think, uh, it has to be something that innately you enjoy, but for me, it's social time. It's mental de-stress time. There's a lot of, a lot of benefits that I get out of it. So. Yeah, I completely agree. And kind of switching gears today, we're going to talk a bit, a little bit about the lumbar spine. I think this is actually our first lumbar spine talk that we've had ever on the podcast. Um, but we're going to talk about kind of some lumbar disc pathology, lumbar disc herniations. And uh, if you could, can you kind of just, you know, take us through some of the anatomy, like when we're just looking at the lumbar spine, the things that we need to know about the spine itself. Um, and then we can kind of talk about some of the anatomy of the intervertebral disc. I know that's, you know, it's important Definitely. to understand that. Definitely. So I was mentioning earlier that there's a lot of patterns uh, within the spine. And so um, firstly, there are typically five lumbar spine vertebral bodies, but it is important to know that up to five to 10% of people do have variable anatomy. Um, so you'll hear talk of a transitional vertebra. And you might hear about that in spine, or you may even hear about it in trauma. So if you're putting a, um, an iliosacral screw 
and they have a dysplastic sacrum. That's actually often kind of part of this lumbosacral transitional anatomy. And when I describe this to patients, I tell them that basically there was uh, a vertebral body that got confused as to whether it was part of the lumbar spine or the sacrum and kind of was somewhere in between. So there's a variety of ways in which it can present. Um, and so it's really important to, whenever you're looking at um, imaging with that kind of transitional anatomy to identify what level you're calling what, whether you're calling that transitional level an L5 or an S1, et cetera. Um, now, in terms of kind of the standard anatomy, it's also important to know that the nerve root exits below the numbered vertebra. So you'll find that that's different than in the cervical spine. So basically the L4 nerve root exits below the L4 pedicle. Um, one of the patterns that I learned early on and have found really useful is to think of kind of each level. You go pedicle, nerve root, then disc, then pedicle, then nerve root, then disc. And ah, whenever you okay. think of it that way, it really makes, it really kind of makes sense because you think, okay, you know, you go kind of level by level and it's almost like, you know, almost like, uh, you know, little stripes of, okay, this is the pedicle level. This is the nerve root level. This is the disc level. And then when you think about it that way, you can think about, oh, this is how a disc herniation affects this, you know, this nerve within the foramen, et cetera. Um, other things, spinal cord typically ends somewhere around T12 L1 through L1 L2. And um, there can be a slight variation in that, but I think many of us as spine surgeons, one of our biggest pet peeves is when people are talking about the lower lumbar spine and they're talking about compression of the spinal cord. Um, yeah. So that's something we definitely don't I, want I to think say. I've made that mistake. A lot of people in my make that days. mistake. It's not the end of the world, but if you don't make that mistake, you know, then uh, it gives you a little extra point. So, um, so the spinal cord ends there and that's, that's called the conus. And then below that is obviously the cauda equina um, with the nerve roots floating freely. So overall there's more, there's more, um, there's more room within the lumbar spine. You know, if, even if there's a lot of narrowing of the spinal canal, people can still be very functional. Whereas in the cervical spine, we tend to get more concerned when there's narrowing of the spinal canal, because then obviously there can be pressure on the spinal cord. Yeah. And I like what you said about thinking about it, like, you know, um, pedicle nerve root disc, that's a good way to, to think and remember, you know, where the nerve root exits, uh, exactly. but, you know, in regards to the, to the vertebra. And speaking of this, can you take us through some of the anatomy of the intervertebral disc, or at least some of the things that we need to know about it? Yes, definitely. So um, these are favorites on um, some of the board questions or even kind of quote unquote um, pimping questions uh, <laughs> because they're objective facts and objective facts are always the, you know, less useful in day-to-day -day life, um, but things that uh, are important to remember. So you have the outer annulus, it's the tougher fibrous component. Um, and so people talk about annular tears and that's basically that that outer rim, um, that fibrous part kind of has a disruption within it. And sometimes it can even be, um, you know, a linear tear within it, kind of similar to how a meniscus can get different types of tears. Um, so there can be a linear tear without having a full-blown disc herniation. Um, it's collagen type one and it's in uh, dense concentric rings and it has more tensile strength. Whereas the nucleus pulposus is, is the more central part and that has strength in compression. So if you think about it, that's kind of the more um, somewhat spongy, it's uh, you know firm, but spongy. Uh, we often compare it to uh, imitation crab meat 
it is actually very similar in consistency, at least when it's, you know, healthy, uh, well hydrated disc. It's collagen type two. And so it's water. And then it's these aggregated proteoglycans, which um, basically attract water. And that's what gives it a lot of its um, compressive strength. And a common question here is that it's derived from the notochord. Um, also, it's avascular, which is important. So the, you know, the very outer portion of the outer annulus has a vascularity, but the nucleus pulposus itself is avascular. So where does it, so if it's avascular, how, you know, where is it getting its innervation from? Because, you know, sometimes these can be painful or, or exactly. not painful. So where, where is that coming from? Yes. So it arises from something called the dorsal root ganglion. Um, and it's actually, again, it's innervated just in the superficial fibers of the annulus. So when somebody has a lot of pain from either a disc herniation or just a disruption in the rim of the disc, it's from those outer fibers of the annulus that are actually painful. Um, so it's not kind of the inner part being disrupted. It's actually that outer part. And in terms of the vascular supply, again, because it's limited to that fibrocartilaginous end plate, um, there's actually pores within the end plates. And so it's more a, a diffusion um, via a process of diffusion. And so nowadays, you know, it used to be thought that um, any sort of, uh, impact activity could actually be, you know, bad for discs. And so people would say, oh, you know, you shouldn't do impact activities, et cetera. It's actually been increasingly recognized that doing um, certain, certain activities that have, you know, reasonable amount of impact, obviously not, you know, very super physiologic um, levels of impact, but that's actually helpful. It actually helps ah. with that diffusion. So um, I'm obviously biased because I'm a runner <laughs> right. and everybody talks about how running will ruin your knees and ruin your back. But I yes. think similar to how we've learned in other joints, you know, it's actually good to have some level of impact and um, to, to really encourage that uh, movement um, via diffusion. So. And, and so, so to sum it up, so the things we need to know definitely about the intervertebral um, disc is you have the outer annulus, which yep. is uh, composed of type one collagen. It has that tensile strength. And you also have the nucleus pulsus, which is derived from the notochord. And that's more type two collagen. Um, you're going to have aggregated proteoglycans there. And then the disc actually gets this innervation from the sinovertebral uh, nerve. Yes, exactly. And, and so, you know, I guess, you know, we always look in or we always see about like kind of degenerative changes that goes on the spine. They like to ask that question to us too. Yes. <laughs> very, basic size. Can you very much so. <laughs> so there are a lot of different changes that happen and often kind of happen concurrently. Um, so first off, there's, there's diminished blood flow. And so there actually is evidence that degenerative disc disease can be accelerated by tobacco use or other things that can affect um, that blood flow, because we already said it already is only um, getting vascularity on the outer part. So if you further diminish that, it can actually accelerate degenerative changes. And when that occurs, so first off that nucleus pulposus, that's normally supposed to be kind of this soft, spongy, almost similar to that imitation crab meat material, it becomes more fibrotic. And the reason for that is those proteoglycans, they actually break apart. So they can't pull as much water towards them. And so that water content decreases because those shorter chains, they're not able to latch on to a whole lot of water. Um, so overall it gets more dried out. And we actually see that in surgeries that these, you know, if somebody with a relatively degenerative disc, if we go and pull out their disc, it doesn't have that nice sponginess to it. It tends to almost be all 
almost similar to the annulus, not exactly, but it tends to be kind of dried out and, and more fibrous. Um, and then uh, there's an increase in keratin sulfate to chondroitin sulfate, which again, that's kind of one of those things to memorize because you never know when you'll run across that question. And then fissures can develop within the annulus. Um, so there can be those acute tears that happen with a disc disruption, but then more chronically degenerative changes are more of those degenerative fissures that can develop. Yeah, I definitely seen the question about the keratin sulfate because I'm pretty sure I got it wrong the first time I did it. And the, the other question about the water content and, and the nucleus pulpus and that it actually decreases and, and the polioglycans decrease as well. Yep. And, and what role do like the MMPs, uh, or, you know, the matrix metalloproteinases play, you know, in regard to these kind of degenerative changes? Yes. So there are um, all these other kind of inflammatory factors and, and we're still kind of delineating exactly how these are all involved and whether we can affect this whole process. Um, but basically, so matrix metalloproteinases, otherwise known as MMPs, they actually contribute to degradation of um, the extracellular matrix and also involved are interleukin-1 and TNF-alpha. Um, and some of those can actually contribute to um, what we call modic changes. And those are changes, they're radiologic changes. So it's, it's not something that somebody would describe as a symptom or it's not necessarily directly um, correlated with whether or not somebody is symptomatic. It's purely just radiologic changes that are seen. Um, but it's end plate changes adjacent to the disc. And in the early phases, it actually does look like an inflammatory response. So there's um, type one, which is surrounding edema, just like we'd see in any other inflammatory response. Type two, you start to get local ischemia. And then type three is once there's subchondral sclerosis. So that's kind of end stage when there's already the sclerosis. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody with type three motive changes is going to have horrible pain. Um, so it's not necessarily correlated. Certainly if somebody has bad pain and they have one particular level with those modic changes, then you know that that's probably the level that's contributing to their pain, but it's not necessarily concerning if somebody has those motive changes and is asymptomatic and going out about their daily life. It okay. is posited that the type one may actually be related to low grade infection. Um, but evidence is not definitive. Um, some people even, uh, you know, looked into it and um, thought that maybe P acnes could actually be related in um, these low grade um, changes within the disc. Um, mm. But that's still being still being sorted out. So. Okay. And, and so Dr. Hollinger, you know, we, I mean, we talked about at least the anatomy and the important things regarding, um, you know, regarding the discs and things to note. But can you kind of take me through, you know, when you see a patient in your clinic, what is the history like? Like what kind of questions are, uh, are you asking them or what are they telling you? And then if you, after that, could kind of take us through your physical exam and how you examine these uh, patients. Definitely. So um, this gets into why I think it's so important to still remember how to take a good history and physical, um, because I'll have patients come in and they, and they think they have this unique story and then they'll start talking and then they'll finish up and I'll, I'll ask them questions about the history and they'll say, how in the world did you know that I, you know, that I did X, Y, Z, or how did you know that it bothers me doing this, that, or the other? Um, because there really is this very classic pattern of um, history and then also exam findings with any sort of disruption of the disc. And again, this can be a full-blown disc herniation where they actually push disc from inside the disc space out into the spinal canal, or it could simply be a disruption of the rim of the disc. Um, but basically, 
anything that will disrupt the rim of the disc, they, they may or may not have an inciting event. Um, and if they do recall something, it's usually a flexion or a twisting or any sort of shearing, especially if it's rapid or dynamic. Um, and also first thing in the morning, it's more likely um, to be disrupted. So one of the worst things, some people come in and they're so proud because they get out of bed and they stretch first thing in the morning and they go and they bend and try to touch their toes. Um, but that actually is well, you shouldn't very do that. commonly a cause. <laughs> That's oh, <man>. very commonly <laughs> a cause. Um, because, you know, you've just been lying in bed without the effects of gravity. And so then you stand up and immediately flex through your spine and your discs don't tend to like that. And so that's actually a really Man, common thing. Did not know um, that. Yes. So often there's a fairly sudden onset of, of back pain with or without leg pain. Um, sometimes they start off with back pain, likely because they've disrupted the disc, but then a few days later, the leg pain starts. So likely they've pushed out a little disc and then it migrates and then begins irritating one of the nerve roots. Um, and so it can lead to just an acute flare, of what we call discogenic back pain. Um, and so that's, you know, maybe they just disrupted the rim of the disc or maybe they herniated some disc, but it's not irritating a nerve root. And so they'll get this very classic pattern of back pain symptoms. It's what you often hear when you hear somebody say they threw their back out, they locked their back up, et cetera. Um, and then if they have a disc protrusion, it may or may not impinge on the nerves, like I was mentioning. And then some people have more of this like chronic waxing and waning um, disc related back pain. So maybe it started off with this acute flare up in the past, but now they just have this persistent, I call it kind of a toothache kind of pain and it feels really deep and nagging. Um, and so sometimes people develop that more chronic, um, nature of it. And I've actually found that it can be very similar to people trying to manage a tendonitis. Um, and I think that's because, you know, again, it's a soft, it's a soft tissue injury. And I even find it helpful to talk to patients in that way. Um, because people can have a, a really bad tendonitis that flares up really quickly and is really severe and they're hobbling around. Um, or they can just have this chronic tendonitis that they're constantly managing. And this can be very similar. So I think it helps, you know, for, for those who see more of the, um, you know, sports medicine injuries and things like that to recognize that this can follow a fairly similar pattern. Yeah. And is a quick question, is that discogenic back pain? And is that something, you know, you, you see with this and then on physical, when you kind of flex them forward, they kind of just have that achy pain in the back. Exactly. And okay. so they tend to either be very uncomfortable when they flex forward. Interestingly, they tend to be the worst when they're partially flexed. So oftentimes they'll start bending forward and they'll almost have this little hitch as they're bending forward midway. And then it'll, you'll see them kind of loosen up and then go the rest of the way down. But then they actually find it hard to straighten back up. Um, and so, and they'll often um, also say that, oh, if I'm unloading things from the dishwasher and bending over to, um, to play with a kid or bending over to feed a pet their food, that that's very bothersome. They'll often typically say that um, sit, prolonged sitting is bothersome. Um, but oftentimes with the more chronic discogenic back pain, sometimes prolonged standing can be bothersome too. Just any position for too long, it'll start getting more achy. Um, but yes, on, on exam, it can be a very kind of classic pattern. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted, yeah, I just thought about that, but yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. You can continue <laughs> taking us yeah, through yeah. Uh, history um, and physical. The other thing is that it can refer the pain. It can have ref what we consider referred pain into the buttocks or kind of what I call the hip girdles like out to the sides. 
And that's not necessarily a true radiculopathy. Now, some people it can be associated with radiculopathy that kind of goes into the buttock or the thigh. Um, but even just this isolated back pain, it can refer the pain into the buttocks and, and hip girdles. Um, and, uh, and it's just all kind of musculoskeletal. Um, in terms of leg symptoms, if somebody has them, um, again, typically it would be due to impingement of the nerve roots if they're actually having symptoms radiating down the leg. And again, they may have the back symptoms first and then the leg symptoms develop later. Or it may all have come on at once. It's usually unilateral. Um, they may have symptoms in the opposite leg that are typically less severe. Usually they'll have one leg that's more severely affected. Um, very rarely, you might have a very large disc herniation that affects both legs fairly similarly, but that's very uncommon. Um, you'd see that more in somebody with a degenerative stenosis where it can be narrowed around both nerves kind of similarly. But with this, usually a disc herniation will be asymmetric to one side. Um, pain and tingling are the most common. Now, frank numbness and weakness are overall less common, but definitely more concerning. Um, there are on occasion patients that'll come in with a foot drop or something like that. And it's pretty clear that it's from herniated disc or you have an MRI that shows it. And that's definitely something to monitor more closely. Um, in terms of what worsens the leg symptoms, they're often worse with flexion or with sitting um, because that increases the pressure on the disc. But if that fragment has totally extruded out and it's no longer connected to the rest of the disc, they actually may feel better with sitting, which seems a little strange, but basically if it's already totally separated from the disc, them flexing forward, it no longer kind of increases the pressure on that fragment. Um, and so when they sit, that fragment is taking up room in their spinal canal. And when they sit, they're actually opening the spinal canal. Cause mm -hmm. you think about somebody with stenosis, they bend forward cause they want to enlarge their spinal canal. So if their fragment is kind of sitting way separate from the disc space and taking up room, then somebody might actually feel better with sitting. So it's not a cut and dry, oh, it's always worse with sitting, et cetera. Um, but uh, oftentimes they will feel better with shifting around. Um, basically they're the ones who are kind of pacing around the room and kind of constantly shifting from one leg to another. Yeah. And, and so you talk about, you know, you talked to us about kind of these leg symptoms that we, that you can see when these patients have these disc herniations. And a lot of times where I remember, at least when I was a first year or a second year, and I was seeing the terms like central paracentral disc herniations, like I just thought it was just a herniation. I didn't know there was yes. more than that, but there apparently there is. Exactly. Uh, can you guys take us through uh, you know, kind of these, this disc, disc disruptions, the anatomy, yes. and then some of the kind of these different locations? Yes. So basically the locations, they're all described kind of relative to the spinal canal. So disc herniations can happen out anteriorly too, but nobody really talks about them because they're nowhere near the nerve. So basically we're talking about all of these as some degree of a posterior based disc herniation where it is either within the spinal canal or outside of the spinal canal, but pinching on a nerve. So basically you look at it relative to the rim of the disc. So a central disc herniation Basically, it's located kind of in the center of that posterior part of the disc. So it's going to be located within the central part of the canal. Um, paracentral is the most common. So that's kind of the ones that they're off towards one side of the spinal canal. And those are actually the most common because it's where the posterior longitudinal ligament that runs along the backside of the annulus, it's where it's the weakest. So it's kind of the weak link. And so a disc herniation can push out there. And the problem is that's also where the nerve is most vulnerable because it's kind of traveling along that side of the spinal canal. And then this big piece of disc just comes in and slams into it and pushes it against the, um, the kind of roof of bone 
that's overlying the spinal canal. And so it's kind of trapped there between a rock and a hard place is what I like to tell patients. So not only is it the most common location, but it's also getting a nerve where it's um, fairly vulnerable. Then you get into the foraminal and far lateral, which that's kind of a continuum. And basically that gets into where you're actually affecting that exiting nerve root. So if you think about what I was talking about earlier, pedicle nerve root disc. So that's talking about the exiting nerve root that exits below the pedicle and typically exits above a disc. Well, if that disc herniation uh, happens within that foramen, right where that nerve root is traveling kind of just cranial to it, you can imagine if that disc herniation goes and then takes up a lot of the foramen, it'll pinch that nerve. And um, the far lateral is actually after, just after it's exited the foramen, but those are really big disc herniations that are big enough that it still displaces the nerve enough um, that uh, somebody will get um, a ridiculous um, pattern of symptoms. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Those actually can sometimes, if it's a large disc herniation in the far lateral area, they can actually be some of the most sensitive ones. And if you recall earlier, I talked about the dorsal root ganglion. It actually, it, that, um, that area on the nerve is kind of right in that far lateral location. So when somebody has a big far lateral disc herniation, it often kind of hits right on that dorsal root ganglion. And those are the patients that have the most exquisite pain. They often have this like allodynia, they can't even have sheets touch their leg, et cetera. Really? So, um, yeah. So even though it's an area where you'd think, oh, the nerve has a lot of room to travel, but it's a really sensitive spot on the nerve. It's the most sensitive spot. And so they're often the most miserable patients. Um, mm. and, and they're also really tricky to manage surgically. So <laughs> spine surgeons often don't like it when far lateral disc herniations Ooh. walk into our office, but, um, but that's, what's important about those. And then there's also a way to describe them relative to where they are in the PLL. So you'll also hear kind of separate from the description of central, paracentral, et cetera, whether it's beneath the PLL, subligamentous, transligamentous is actually pushed through the PLL and ruptured the PLL, or if it's extruded and extruded or sequestered, which is when it's totally separated, it kind of, um, you know, tore off from the rest of the hole and then uh, the, the whole disc um, and has traveled elsewhere. And so it's sitting somewhere else and not, and it's no longer contiguous with the disc. And it isn't also with the locations, or at least, I, I, at least I think I've seen them test about it. Like the far laterals versus the paracentrals, one may get the traversing nerve root while one may get more the exiting nerve root. And so the, the levels, yes. the, the levels may be, it may be different exactly levels affected. Right. 
Yeah. So the foramenal and the far lateral, um, when I was mentioning that, that, that exiting nerve root comes under the pedicle and above the disc. So those foramenal and far laterals, that's why it gets the exiting nerve root. So let's say that you have an L4, five disc herniation and you have a, a foramenal, a foramenal or far lateral disc herniation that's going to slam into that exiting L4 nerve root. Cause remember L4 to L5, it's the L4 nerve root that exits up above that L4 slash five disc. And so that far lateral disc herniation gets the L4 nerve root. However, the more common paracentral disc herniation, it's within the spinal canal. So it's not going to get that L4 nerve. The L4 nerve has already exited up above it. Um, And so if it's within the spinal canal, paracentral or central, it gets those traversing nerve roots. And so if it's paracentral, it often just gets a, a single, you know, nerve root going by, or maybe, you know, a couple of the traversing nerve roots. The central ones are the ones where it can really affect multiple multiple nerve roots if it's quite large. Ah, okay. And so say, you know, they have this, this herniation, you know, you've gotten a history and you are highly concerned for this herniation. What, like, what's your physical exam? Like, how do you, how do you do your physical exam with these patients? Yeah. So one of the most important things I find is um, that you really try to pin down where, um, where their symptoms are in terms of their um, dermatomes and in terms of their myotomes. So that's why we kind of really, um, you know, whenever there are spine lectures, we really harp on, you know, what are the dermatomes, what are the myotomes, et cetera. Um, Because really what I like to say is you shouldn't be getting an MRI because you don't know what's going on and you want to see what's going on. You should get an MRI to confirm what your suspicion is and either prove or disprove. Um, So you should have some sense of what might be going on just from the history and the exam. So basically you want to look for a dermatomal distribution of either altered sensation or they may have a normal sensory exam, but I actually tell patients to show me exactly where their pain goes. So I tell them to trace it along their leg um, because sometimes they think it goes one way and then you kind of pin them down and they say, oh yeah, it actually does, you know, oh, actually when I think about it, it goes more to the top of my foot. I thought it was the whole foot, but it's actually just the top. Um, And so even if they have normal sensation, you can find out where their sensory symptoms or their, or their pain symptoms typically travel. Um, And then a motor exam. And then we want to do a straight leg raise tension sign. And that is commonly done sitting though. You can do it lying down. And that's when, even if a patient doesn't really know where their symptoms typically travel, if they have a positive straight leg raise tension sign where you have them seated or lying down and you raise that affected leg Um, you straighten it out and you raise it up and see if they, if it replicates their symptoms, then they can tell you, Oh, okay, this is where it's going. Cause sometimes patients, you know, they just think of it as leg pain and they don't think about where it goes. So I'll do the straight leg raise tension sign and I'll say, okay, now, you know, tell me where that symptom traveled. And then the range of motion testing I mentioned earlier that, you know, some of these patients with the disc related pain, they have a lot of pain as they initiate flexion or when they're coming back up, et cetera. Um, and so, um, in terms of the, I I was mentioning the dermatomes and the myotomes. Um, so the most common ones that really you'll see are L4, L5 and S1. So L4 is kind of your more medial leg. So medial anteromedial shin or anteromedial thigh, sorry, medial shin, and then going towards the medial aspect of the foot. L5, you think of as lateral thigh lateral shin, and then going into the dorsum of the foot. And then S1 is more the posterior distribution and going down the posterior thigh, the posterior calf, and then plantar foot, but also the lateral foot. Um, And it can vary a little bit. I tell people nerves don't always read the textbooks, but um, it's, you know, fairly, um, fairly similar to those. 
And then in terms of strength testing, so L4 most typically quadriceps and tibialis anterior. Um, L5, most commonly your EHL, so extension of the big toe. And then S1 is gastroc, and then also the perineal, so averting the foot. So sometimes I'll see patients where they're gastroc, you're not really able to detect weakness, but then the perineals, you can detect that, hey, they actually do have some weakness in that S1 distribution. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll even have patients tell me, oh yeah, I've kind of been rolling this ankle um, more often. I feel like it's not quite as stable and it's not because they have an ankle injury. It's actually because their, their perineals are not as strong. Oh, that's a good gem. I didn't, uh, yeah. I forgot about the perennials. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And so, so say for example, you know, you get a patient come to your clinic, uh, I don't know, 45 year old male who just woke up and decided to do some extreme stretching that day and had, <laughs> and had some, uh, back pain, you know, you saw him in a clinic, and you got a positive straight, um, straight leg raise. And, you know, he has that, that dermatomal, you know, pain distribution, um, say down in the kind of the L5, a little bit of weakness with, you know, um, extension of the hallux. What do you, how do you, how do you manage these? You know, you, we come in and, and they have a disc herniation. We think that's what it is from history and physical exam. Like, where do we go from here on, on yeah. like operative, non-operative? Exactly. So one of the first things I talk to patients about, because a lot of patients fear disc herniations and they think, oh my gosh, I've herniated my disc. My back will never be the same again. Um, and, and that's just really not necessarily the case. Um, and I counsel them. I say, you know, hey, a lot of times, 90% of the time, patients with a disc herniation and leg-based symptoms, they'll see improvement in six weeks and we don't need to do surgery. Um, and especially if they're coming in and they have, you know, some pain, a little bit of numbness, a little bit of weakness in their gray toe, but they don't have any profound weakness that affects their daily living. You know, I tell them, Hey, there's, there's majority of the time we can, we can treat this without surgery. And we always have a backup option that if it's not getting better, not getting better, not getting better near that 10%. Good news is, is that there's a very reliable treatment option for that as well. But I think that really helps because there's a lot of anxiety kind of related to that. And I also tell them that, hey, while some people do develop these discogenic back pain flares that a lot of people don't. And so for a lot of people, they have a disc herniation, they get better. And then they, you know, especially if they kind of keep their core strong and they know what things to avoid, not doing these dynamic activities that are, you know, really high stress, um, you know, they, they don't ever come back into my office. So conservative. I start people pretty early on physical therapy, usually with an extension-based program, as long as they can tolerate it. So basically you want to take all the stress off the disc. You don't want to accentuate the flexion-based stuff. You want to really strengthen those muscles that extend the spine and take the stress off of that disc. Um, also, if somebody is in more, more severe pain, oftentimes we will do an oral steroid burst. Um, so oftentimes if you're in the ER on call and you see a patient with a radiculopathy and it's severe enough that they come to the ER, a lot of times they're going to go home with a medral pack or some other steroid burst, steroid taper, um, or if it's less severe, some anti-inflammatories. And then it used to be that bed rest was recommended, but that typically worsens symptoms. So it's no longer recommended. Now I do tell people, cause a lot of times they're super locked up. It's really painful for them to flex. So I often tell them that they could use a corset or a really lightweight brace for short-term use. So for like a week to get them over their symptoms. And I've found that that really helps for them to be able to do their activities and be mobile because we know that some degree of mobility is good. Again, mobility brings blood flow. It brings nutrition. It starts to help with the healing process. 
but it helps them avoid kind of accidentally flexing through their lumbar spine. So it's not going to completely prevent it, but if they start to kind of bend down to do something, they feel the brace and they remember, oh yeah, it's going to hurt if I do that. So it kind of um, gives them a mental reminder not to continually flex. Um, and there are some studies that show that for a very short time frame, not for long-term use, that a brace can be helpful for these flare-ups of back pain. Um, and so then as long as somebody is not having any worsening weakness or numbness, then we monitor the, them with time and we see how they do over the first four to six weeks. So, so when do you, when do you get imaging, you know, for yeah. these patients? Are you, you send everybody for an MRI to confirm it initially, or are you, are you just getting x-rays or what is your, yeah. kind of your thought process? So usually x-rays is an initial screen. And again, if somebody was going to a primary care, sometimes x-rays aren't even necessarily indicated even then, but we're kind of presuming, Hey, if they're showing up in a, in an orthopedist office, in a spine person's office, they've probably at least done some sort of management already and they're coming into your office for a reason. So I do do an x-ray just as an initial screen. Um, I do get flexion extension as long as they're able to tolerate it. And then the standing films, you can even see some subtle signs. A lot of times people with a really bad disc herniation, you'll actually see them tip to the opposite way. Um, so they'll have this like big coronal shift because they're basically trying anything they can do to open up the space around the nerve. Um, so it's kind of funny. Sometimes they don't realize how much they're shifting until they see their x-rays and they look really oh. crooked. Um, and then in terms of when we get an MRI, so obviously if somebody comes in, they already have a lot of weakness or they come in for the first time, they don't have much weakness. And then over the next couple of weeks, they develop more profound foot drop. Obviously then you're going to get an MRI. Um, or if they're not improving and they're, they're giving it a good effort, they're doing physical therapy, they've, you know, tried a steroid burst and they're not getting better. And it's been six weeks, then you get an MRI. And some patients say, Oh, you know, don't you need an MRI? But again, what we talked about earlier was the MRI should be to confirm, you know, right. now if, if somebody shows up with red flag symptoms, so they have fevers, chills, they have a history of IV drug abuse, they have uncontrolled diabetes, they had a recent injection, you know, into the spine, obviously, then you want to rule out a discitis, or, you know, any other um, intraspinal infection, or if they have a history of metastatic cancer, or they have a history of cancer with weight loss, or they have this gnawing pain at night, night sweats, etc., you know, if your antenna are going off about these red flag symptoms, obviously, that is do not pass go get an MRI. Um, and so if there's anything that you just doesn't seem right with their history in that way, um, definitely that would be a reason for it. Yeah. And, and, Oh, one more thing. So if you have somebody, um, Oh no, I guess if, if they have like a significant motor deficit, you're going to get an MRI. Yes, um, so what are you, what are you looking for on the imaging for MRIs? Like, what is it? Remember yeah. this, I was, this, this like daunted me and I was very, you know, I just thought it was so complex when I was, you know, an intern yes. trying to figure this stuff out. So what do you look for on an MRI in these yeah. disc herniations? Well, so I think one thing to be aware of is that, um, you know, th people read things very differently. So there are, you know, there are certain guidelines um, that radiologists use to read things, but I have seen very similar MRIs be read totally differently. So don't be daunted about, oh, is it a protrusion versus bulging? You know, I see them as somewhat of a, somewhat of a continuum. Um, so disc bulging, I describe as kind of when your tire doesn't have enough air in it. And so it kind of like when it's, you know, when it's down against the ground, it kind of like bulges a little bit where it meets the ground and you can tell it looks like a little soft. Whereas like, think about it, if you have a weak spot in the rim of your tire and you get that like air bubble in your tire, that's more like a disc protrusion. Um, so that's kind of how I differentiate it. 
but you'll see some MRI reads where, you know, they read every single levels of protrusion and the patients freak out. Uh, but in terms of how, how I look at it, you know, really a full-blown protrusion is something that's kind of focal and it pushes out and it can potentially impinge on the nerve. And sometimes you can actually see that like that uh, disruption in the rim of the disc. So that's called an annular tear. So if you're reading an MRI report and you hear about an annular tear, all that means is that you can actually see a little white line within the rim of the disc that indicates that it's been disrupted. Now, they may have had that disruption two or three years ago, and it actually will always show up as that lighter color. And so even once it's kind of healed with some fibrous tissue, you'll actually still be able to see it. So it may be new, it may be older. Um, and if a patient has those, those leg symptoms, you want to look for, is there impingement of the nerve roots? Do they have a disc herniation that's pushing the nerve roots in a different direction than they normally want to travel, or that's flattening the nerve root against the, um, against the roof of the spinal canal. And so oftentimes you're looking in the lateral recess, which goes along with paracentral disc herniations. So I was mentioning paracentral disc herniations are the most common. And so the lateral recess is that lateral part of the spinal canal. Um, and then I was mentioning, you know, those really large herniations could affect both sides. And then the other important thing is to evaluate the foramina for a far lateral herniation. So we typically actually look at the axial views for those, um, for kind of your standard paracentral disc herniations. But after I've gone through those, then I look at the sagittals because that's where you can actually confirm whether there's a far lateral disc herniation. Because again, getting back to that pattern, pedicle, nerve root, disc, you're seeing that pattern on your sagittal views. Um, and so you're, you go to those um, kind of those parasagittal cuts where you're seeing the pedicle, you're seeing the nerve root, and that's where you can see this big, you know, disc herniation that's pushing on that exiting nerve root. Um, so that's where you're going to see those the best. And, and so, you know, we had these, you know, say we look and we see, and we see these patients have a really large disc herniation and have a little bit of weakness and say this may be like an intern, um, you know, taking a look at them first. And they're thinking this kind of equinus system for some reason, kind of equinus syndrome uh, for some reason. Can you kind of just briefly, just yeah. quickly, just kind of touch base on the difference between kind equina versus normal, you know, lumbar disc herniation without kind equinus syndrome? Definitely. Definitely. Um, so I think it's always, you know, if there's anything that people take away from this lecture, it's identifying red flag things. So I mentioned the red flag symptoms earlier and then caught Aquinas syndrome. If any of these crop into your head, you know, hey, this, this could possibly be caught Aquina, you know, really important to look at, hey, is this, you know, is this what's going on? Because acute caught Aquinas syndrome is a surgical emergency and should not be missed. Okay. Um, and so typically it, the pathology would be from a large central disc herniation, severely compressing the spinal canal. Now, sometimes something else can cause a cauda equina, so a hematoma or something like that. But in the context of a, of a disc pathology, it would be a large central disc herniation that just totally encompasses the spinal canal. So when you look at an MRI, instead of seeing that um, on the T2 images, normally we see that spinal fluid. It's that nice white color. And then you see all the nerve roots, those little dots that are, that are traveling um, through the spinal canal on the axial images. In these big central disc herniations, literally all that is gone. You just see this big piece of disc um, and you don't know where the nerves are. They're just crammed kind of along the wall of the spinal canal somewhere. So that's kind of what, that's what you're seeing. And on the sagittal views, you're seeing, you know, this huge disc herniation, just pushing straight back into the spinal canal and really um, severely narrowing it. But it's not just that imaging. It's also that they have symptoms related to it. 
So typically they'll have diffuse bilateral leg symptoms as well as bowel and bladder dysfunction. Now, some of the patients may not have really severe bilateral leg symptoms, but they'll, they'll have some degree, almost always. Um, but the most concerning thing is the bowel and bladder dysfunction. And so it's urinary retention. Um, and it may actually present with overflow incontinence, especially if it's been going on for 24 hours. Um, somebody say, oh yeah, I kind of had trouble, trouble peeing and I can dribble though. And like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom, but just a little is dribbling out at a time. That's not them voiding usually. That's that their bladder has become so overly full that some urine is escaping. And so, you know, really um, important to look for that. And then the saddle anesthesia where they have some numbness kind of throughout the perineum. They say, oh yeah, when I wipe, it feels kind of numb. Um, you know, I don't really feel the toilet paper or when I do kind of try to avoid and a little bit dribbles out, I don't really feel the urine coming out. So those are concerning. Um, so it's really important to know this is not a radiologic diagnosis. I can't tell you how many times I get called by the ER saying, oh, it says that there's narrowing around the cauda equina. I'm worried about <laughs> cauda equina syndrome. And I'm like, well, how's the patient doing? Oh, well, he has a little numbness in his towel. And I'm like, okay, I don't have to worry about cauda equina syndrome. <laughs> So, but, you know, if somebody has in-between symptoms, because sometimes they're maybe not full-blown cauda they're kind of on their way there. They're getting some urinary dysfunction, things like that. It might not be acute cauda but let's say that you're the person on call, you should tell somebody. So if you're not sure and you say, ah, this might be kind of a gray zone, maybe not full-blown, but I'm concerned about it, you know, definitely always err on the side of talking to somebody about it. Um, one thing that is very useful if you're taking call in the ER, something that you can do to get more objective info is, um, do a bladder scan. There was actually a recent study that was done that looked at, um, the most, uh, the most useful objective data, um, or, uh, other items from somebody's history that correlated with whether they in fact had acute conic syndrome and having more than 300 cc's on a bladder scan on a post void residual was actually very highly correlated. Um, and, uh, and I've, I've definitely utilized that, um, before to, to assess whether somebody really has conic or not. Cause sometimes you don't really know it's, you know, especially sometimes, you know, conic is not always in a 20 year old. You can get conic in a 50 year old. It's not as common, but you can definitely get it. And so they might say, oh yeah, I have some prostate issues, you know, so sometimes you're not really sure. And so, but a bladder scan can give you really good info. Yeah. I remember one day we were in clinic when I was on my spine rotation, this lady just walked in, uh, you know, just severe back leg pain, leg symptoms, and was saying, yeah, she had a little numbness uh, in her perennial um, area. <laughs> and, and we got an MRI, which showed this large, uh, large herniation. And so yeah, like, Impeding quantity quantity syndrome, we ended up having to take her back that same yep. day and do a microdisectomy. So definitely, uh, these things can definitely happen. Yes, and the the most important reason why that is um, should not be missed is that really your time window for managing this is within forty eight hours of of onset. And the fact is, is that not every patient presents in hour one. You know, because right. a lot of times, like they have a lot of back pain, they have a lot of leg pain. You don't go to the ER immediately. You know, they're kind of like, oh wow, this is you know, this is super significant. And they don't, they don't necessarily know that urinary, you know, urinary dysfunction is concerning. And so they eventually come in when they're like, wow, I really can't go to the bathroom, but they're not going to present right away. And so you really, as soon as you think that it's a possibility, you want to get them the MRI and, uh, and get them taken care of within 48 hours if possible. Cause that's when they have the best likelihood of recovering function. 
Yeah, perfect. I, I think that was a great explanation of kind of quality quantity syndrome. And we know that this is not a related radiological diagnosis, but is a uh, clinical uh, diagnosis as well. So, yep. you know, radiology can, or imaging can help as well. Right. Imaging and, is to confirm the diagnosis, just like, yes. just like with, you know, ones that aren't called equina, it should confirm your suspicion. Yes, totally agree. Thank you all for listening to part one of our episode on lumbar disc herniations with Dr. Hollinger. And please tune in next week for part two. Thank you all for listening to part one of our two-part episode featuring Dr. Hollinger and we talk about lumbar disc herniations. We hope that you all enjoyed it. Hit the subscribe button. Please go ahead and leave a comment in iTunes or however you listen to us and let us know if you like this podcast or no, not if you like it. Let us know how much you like this podcast and some things that you would like to see in the future. And until next time.